0: Hello and welcome back to That HR Podcast. I'm Lily Howlett. And I'm Maggie Baska. This month we're asking how far can
1: employee monitoring go? Companies in the UK are now using cutting-edge software and AI to parse through employee interactions to learn who is the most influential, which teams are the most productive, and who could potentially be a problem within the organisation. But is this good business or a dangerous intrusion? We talk to Ed Houghton, head of research at the CIPD, and Anchor Modi, the founder and chief executive of Status today.
0: And have you ever wondered what HR and couples therapy have in common? We meet Amanda Hughes, who went from being a successful people professional, to helping people work on a very different kind of relationship. And Tim Pointer is back to help another listener in Tim's Pointers. All of that and more in this episode of That HR Podcast. Every day we receive dozens of emails at work, interact with colleagues across multiple platforms and increasingly use internal social media to document our output. All of which means workers generate a venerable goldmine of data for their employees to scrutinise. And now businesses are mining these analytics to figure out what their workforce is up to, who they're talking to and spot the potential warning signs of inappropriate workplace behaviour or dips in well-being.
1: Many UK businesses are now using artificial intelligence software to scrutinize staff in real time, deploying sentiment analysis on messages or tracking interactions. Proponents of this type of monitoring say such data sharing can allow managers to better spot the true high performers and increase productivity. But in this era, when social media giants are under scrutiny for how they handle our communications, why should employers be able to use highly sensitive data for their own purposes? we wanted to test differing viewpoints on this very modern conundrum. So first, Ankur Modi, the founder and chief executive of Status Today, explains how its AI system called Isaac can provide employers with information on how teams collaborate and could help prevent stress and burnout in the workplace.
0: Employee monitoring isn't really a new concept for businesses and many have used things like keystroke monitoring or GPS to see how present employees are. But the use of AI to analyse more contextual data from internal social networks is a fairly recent development. So what exactly can AI pass from staff and workforce data that older systems couldn't? And what's the benefit of using this new technology in, in such a way?
2: So employee monitoring is not new, and you're right. And I think that's the problem with it, that most of the old technologies were more about monitoring than employees. AI basically offers the first ever chance for us to focus a bit more on the employee than the monitoring. And what I mean by that is instead of really focusing on keys you're pressing, the time you're sitting on your desk, the amount of time you took a break for the coffee uh, and all of those kind of things, you can focus on what really matters which is work getting done so the beauty of modern AI tools that have come into play is you can understand how people collaborate with each other, so is there a manager who's being notoriously difficult at enabling people or is blocking mm. things, that is something an AI could expose who are the stressed out or who are the stressed out teams in the organisation who are waiting on on other teams to get work done where in the organization do you have bottlenecks when it comes to well-being or efficiencies that you can now detect? So at the heart of it, what AI has done is finally provide context to actions which historically was not there. In fact, it reminds me of, of this person I knew who worked at Dell And their job was to sell, obviously, as one would expect. Mm -hmm. And they had quotas on how many calls they had to make, how many doors you have to knock on, and, you know, how many people you have to reach. But why does that matter? Why do you have to talk to 50 people a day if you can still sell by talking to five So it shouldn't be about the input. It should be about output. And AI is really, really good at that. It's really good at not keeping an eye on you, but understanding what matters.
1: What is your elevator pitch for your product, Isaac? And what can it do? And how does it improve productivity for employers of the organizations who could use it?
2: Isaac is a people analytics solution that's powered by AI that provides these analytics to improve well-being and efficiency in the organization. At the heart of it, ISAC is not about the manager, it's not about the organization, it's about the employee. And what I mean by that is, ISAC is available not just to the manager, but directly to the employee as well. And this is the first time ever that you as an employee have access to information about you directly back to you. So you can see things like, you know, Who are the people who are affecting your well-being? How responsive are you to clients and external contacts? Or for that matter, are there very serious issues in your collaboration network where you need to step up? What that allows us to do is self-improve. The biggest problem with the workplace right now is people have lost trust in management. And that means you don't trust your manager to kind of have your back, which basically means that if you're doing well, there's no guarantee you'll be rewarded for it. And what Isaac does is gives you an objective basis to say, this is what your output looks like. This is how it compares to the industry. And then when your manager says you're not doing a good job, you can actually counter that with objective data. At the heart of it, what that basically means is instead of relying on subjective reviews and biases, Isaac is the first ever both side or cross, cross side transparent solution both the manager and the employee have access to the exact same information which can be a defining moment when it comes to reviews and promotions and all of that.
0: So if say for example if I was at my desk and I was messaging my manager and I was saying like I'd like to have a catch-up chat with you about my development and they keep saying "Well, no maybe later can this system flag that up like you say and quantify that data and go okay there's a gap in your your productivity?
2: What we have taken a very strong stance on is reading content. So Isaac was designed from day one never to read content, meaning that Isaac doesn't know what people are saying. Isaac doesn't know what's inside files. It doesn't look into things, which is really mm. important because there are cultural and personal differences when it comes to how we communicate with each other. So I think there's a massive room for inaccuracies when it comes to that. Yeah. Not to mention reading content, reading chats has a very serious privacy implication that we believe should be not touched. But at the heart of it, in that example, you know, if you're writing to your manager constantly saying, we need to, we need to meet, we need to sit down, and the manager is refusing that, that interaction will still be visible.
3: Yeah. It will be visible
2: mm-hmm. that there's a lot of back and forth. And it's uh, unresponsive, it's it's a slow response back and forth, yeah. which means at least in your manager's network, it would be very clear that the manager is not very available to you on a communication level. And that is objective because it doesn't rely on what the manager says, but simply the fact that you've written four times, the manager's taken forever to respond, and compared to other managers in the organisation, this is not normal. And that's where you can say, hey, you know, you're not doing a good job.
0: When you're speaking to clients, how how do you recommend that, that they use the information that they generate from Isaac and how do you ensure that they are using it responsibly like you've just said?
2: So the first part is we tell companies that deploy the solution, the customers that we have, really that they should use it as an additional source of information. So it should exclusively serve as an information point. If you're already having a chat about performance, if you're already reviewing employee retention, if you're already addressing staff morale, then use this as an objective data point. Because because of the nature of how it is computed, ISAC can show you the change over time as well. So if I notice there's a problem in morale, and I've made a change, I've added a new policy, or I have I've enacted different working time systems in the company, I will see the change over time in ISAC. And that can be really valuable. So it is really an augmentation of existing knowledge. What we always tell them is never use an AI system to make decisions directly. An AI system of this sort is supposed to be additive rather than decisive. We don't tell who's good and who's bad. How could we? We don't know that. But what we do know is something has changed. We flag change. We don't flag absolutes. That said, what we also talk a lot about is when they do make the decisions, how do they make sure they're doing it responsibly? Mm. And in the responsibility aspect of it, that lies both with the employee and the employer. We encourage them to think of the system not just as an informational system, but as an auditing system meaning that any decision they make will also be reflected and it would also be recorded. So they are accountable for the decisions they make. We have put controls in the platform to make sure that you couldn't use it for casual monitoring. So just because I don't like someone in my team, I shouldn't be able to go and spy on them. That's unacceptable. Eventually, I think the responsibility lies in both the controls we have in the platform, but also making sure that when people make decisions, those decisions are recorded. So they can't have deniability later saying, I had no idea. The I had no idea is a bad excuse for anything. So to be fair, it's their job to know. And Mm -hmm. we help them know. The whole proposition with ISAC is, ISAC helps you understand what's going on. But now you know what's going on. You have no reason not to do something about it. So that's that's a pretty important aspect.
1: And I guess many people believe it's acceptable for monitoring of staff if they give their permission, if they opt into a system. But doesn't that inherently kind of create an imbalance of power in the employment relationship and make it a risky proposition because employers are basically saying it's OK because you've given us a yes?
2: You're basically going into consent uh, here. Consent is very misunderstood. And mm-hmm. I agree with you because not only in the workplace, but also in the consumer space, consent is largely transactional you give it once and you never have to give it again and that singular consent stays uh, as the basis of processing I think that's not okay simply speaking most people don't understand what consent means and that's because they think it's just about can I access your data you say yes but what data what are you going to do with it what will happen to me if you have access to that information in the workplace context I think what is really important is not only is consent sought so you need to get the consent but it's it's renewed on a regular basis reminding people that hey we are still receiving this information from you, we are processing it, and you have the right to cancel it at each point. It's almost like an insurance. It doesn't just mm. continue. You get those renewals and you can review it, you can get a better deal, uh, or you can leave the company. You know, They are valid options. I think eventually, if you do give the consent, the data is processed, you still have the right to see what's happening with it. Giving consent doesn't mean that I can take the information and process it behind the scene. So if the manager decides to use that information to make an objective assessment, that assessment should be visible to you, which is what we do. We've taken the approach that AI should be transparent. So making sure that decisions that the AI is making are contestable both by you and the manager, which is really important because in the early days of development, AI will be ambiguous. It will not say something is good or something is bad. And if the manager or the leadership decides to take that information as negative, You should have the opportunity to say that's not true so the interpretation matters a lot the challenge going forward would be that employees will not be trained enough to handle or interpret this data and that's where Mm. i think there's a responsibility on the workplace to train individuals to be better equipped to do data analysis
0: while using ai to monitor staff can be a boon to employers eager to see digital warning signs of harassment or bullying online before they become real life problems Critics say such monitoring systems risk putting increasing pressure on workers who fear the judgment of AI algorithm. Some say this hyper-monitoring could have a distancing effect or breakdown of trust between employers and employees.
1: Previous research by the TUC found workers were worried about this monitoring and surveillance data could be used by bosses to set unfair targets, micromanage them, and take away their autonomy. With workplace monitoring projected to become commonplace in the future, Ed Houghton, head of research at the CIPD, explains the boundaries HR professionals need to be aware of going forward. When we think about the concept of employee monitoring, what are the boundaries of what's acceptable and proportionate, and where do you think we're starting to see that line being crossed?
4: It's a really interesting question. Part of what I think is important to recognize is uh, changing social norms around monitoring of data and surveillance mm-hmm. of data. So one of the areas I think to explore further is how much we expect products and services to be utilizing our data. and outside of work, there's a huge trend towards the internet of things, devices collecting data and people consuming products and services that are tailored towards their individual needs. Mm. And this trend is clearly moving into the workplace. So in the workplace, organisations are now talking about employee experience as a concept. And employee experience is built around this idea of understanding individual needs. So monitoring and surveillance is perhaps the darker side of organisations trying to collect and utilise data at its disposal to try and create a more rounded workplace for individuals to be productive, but also to feel healthy and to feel like they are able to be themselves in the workplace. It's, it's interesting to think about the kind of context in which organisations mm. operate. And I think when we think about monitoring surveillance, it's easy to get caught up or concerned and rightly so concerned about the extent to which data is being used about us. But it also can be it can be framed in a very positive light in terms of creating a, a more... Um, engaging workplace for individuals
0: is there a way in which sentiment analysis could be used legitimately if it does work on an anonymized basis and isn't it positive that people want to spot potential problems before they happen
4: Yes, so this is another fascinating space of debate. It's the extent to which we can make the use of data accessible and useful for individuals and to protect individuals. So at its most positive, it could be used to highlight discrimination. It could be used to highlight instances of exclusion of individuals. If a discourse in an organisation is overly geared towards a certain represented group it's really important actually that we think about that data and utilize it to explore some of the gaps that we understanding of culture in the workplace so there is a kind of positive slant to that mm. this is happening so data in emails data from um, mobile phones in the workplace our calendars are open to be used by organizations to look at how we not as individuals but as groups of individuals as teams and as uh, whole organizations are using our calendars efficiently how mm. we mm. you know how we use our day to our the best of our productivity and around performance but what I think people get concerned about is whether they can be isolated as an individual, yeah. and whether they mm-hmm. can be um, exploited essentially about their data, and that's a very it's a very important concern that we have to consider. Yeah. So the TUC put out a report last year that found that. Over half of employees, people in work today, feel like surveillance is happening to them. They are monitored Mm. in the workplace. And 70% of individuals also think that it's going to get more frequent in the future. Mm. So it's likely to continue to happen in the future. So we have to think about the way that organizations are transparent about the extent to which they're monitoring and using data. And also, most importantly, the reason why. What's the purpose of monitoring? What's the purpose of collecting data about individuals? And how can we protect individuals? in particular individuals who may be in groups that are oppressed and are unable to voice their concerns.
1: You mentioned that there's already kind of a dialogue around concerns around trust and if monitoring is going to be upped in the future. Are we seeing a broader erosion of that trust between employers and employees? And is this, in your view, a symptom or a cause of that in terms of employee monitoring?
4: It's a tightrope of of trust, really, that I think is individuals walk in the workplace and there are behaviours in particular from management that can, you know, can really damage trust. Mm. And I think the unethical capture of data and the unawareness of individuals to the extent to which data is being used can really destroy trust for individuals in the workplace and Mm. it's very very hard to build trust when it has been destroyed and so there's a very careful kind of strategy you need as a HR function in the way you think of building trust through your practices and the way that you enable individuals to feel they can trust you as an organization, as a function. And line managers, in particular, are critical in this whole debate in being transparent and open, having clear dialogue about the extent to which data is being captured and used, and also the extent to which individuals can voice their concerns. And if you do build these mechanisms where individuals can share their concerns, can critique, talk openly, and have a dialogue with managers, about the extent to which data is being captured you can build trust and let's not forget data can be used to protect individuals Mm -hmm. it can be used legitimately to ensure that individuals feel secure and safe in the workplace and as technology becomes more capable it may be able to predict issues for individuals through their behaviors and through the data that's being captured so there are potential positives there but like I say if you damage trust, it's very difficult to build and this is an area that's fraught with challenge as data is showing us.
0: And um, what sort of conversations should an HR professional be having if they're asked to consider introducing monitoring technology?
4: The Data Protection Act 1998 is really clear about the extent to which we can collect and use this data. It's really important that we think about legitimate reasons why, that we're transparent and open, that we think about how we are enabling individuals to voice their concerns. And so collecting, storing, and using personal data is bound by those those laws mm. and regulations and we have to ensure that we're doing that in a fair way and in a way that complies with that regulation. GDPR kind of builds on that so you get uh, further protections for individuals which is very positive positive. and of course we have the 20 million euros penalty for organisations that breach those regulations and so there are enhanced protections and those protections should be made aware to employees so employees do know their rights in the way that this data is being captured and so hr practitioners really should have a dialogue they should be open with employees about why and how they're collecting data they need to think about the positives and the negatives in a risk assessment so assess the risk of what actually could happen if data collection and data storage and data use should go wrong Mm. should be very open with the ability for individuals to be able to share their concerns put in place the right kind of voice mechanisms for them to share their concerns in those ways and it's also really very important as well for employers to think about the long-term implications when it comes to trust in the workplace if you have a monitoring and surveillance culture is that something that you think future employees would want to to understand and, and join your organisation for? Would you trust an organisation if it were to implement these kind of practices? As you, as a consumer, you know, as a consumer, people make decisions on brands according to issues in the wider world, and I think. Future employees will also make decisions on mm. these kind of risks in the of the workplace, and so you certainly see that with issues around job quality for certain types of industries where individuals are now quite savvy, and those in the labour market who can make decisions about where they where they work are likely to make decisions on this kind of information. So it's all about culture and trust and. There's a trade-off between whether you monitor employees' behaviours and whether you're able to attract the right kind of talent to your organisation for those who may feel that that's a step too far.
0: In the modern workplace, HR takes on multiple roles and professionals often act as a coach, therapist, teacher and employment law specialist. But how about also being a couples counsellor? Joining us today is Amanda Hughes, couple psychotherapist and clinical lecturer at Tavistock Relationship, to share her journey from being a head of HR to retraining as a therapist. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much.
1: First, I just wondered if you could briefly run us through your HR career. Kind of, How did you get started in the people profession? What was your career like and what prompted you to want to go into couples therapy as a career?
5: Well previously to training and qualifying as a therapist I've held a, a variety of roles. I've held roles at sort of the more junior levels particularly when I was starting out in um, what well, it was called personnel then more frequently. And then later I've been an HR director, I've had two HR director posts actually, I've been a director of training, leadership development. A lot of my passion actually was probably in the sort of leadership and development <coughs> side. Um, so I've done a lot of work in coaching, I've also done mediation. But yeah, I've got a pretty sort of extensive and intensive his- history really. I say, I've been working in HR and training for quite some time and I was starting to feel a little bit Restless. I had had some thoughts about sort of more of a long term goal, thinking mm. that I probably would do some sort of consultancy type work. But I wasn't quite ready to, to necessarily go sort of solo, but I definitely was aware of a kind of a restlessness. And in particular, at, around the time when I was starting to, to think about doing something different, I'd been working for a really huge private sector organisation and it was, it was a big role, it was mm. very demanding. It was a pretty senior role, HR director role, twins they were growing up really fast and I was kind of aware of missing a lot of that so I thought I know I'll change sector I'll go and I'm quite a fan of education as well so I took um, an HR director post into um, a local FE college and within a fairly sort of short period of time I suddenly had a bit of a bigger role and then within a few years I was a deputy principal and suddenly my downsize (laughs) (laughs) had ballooned into quite a beast um, of a role again and I realised it's not quite where I wanted to be. And there were some Mm. personal circumstances that meant that I probably didn't have that sort of availability of energy and time, you know, to sort of put into my career in, in, in the way that I had previously. So I decided to leave, give myself some time and some space to think about, okay, where am I at? What do I want to do? But knowing that Working with people and the sort of psychology and the sort of emotional, mental sort of makeup of people is still really of interest to me. And on and off throughout the years, I had thought about training to be um, a counsellor. And I think that that sort of came back. To me, um, as I was sort of having a bit more space from organisational life, so rather than then embarking on what I thought I was going to, which was consultancy, perhaps in mediation, perhaps in coaching, leadership development, organisational strategy, that kind of thing, I um, actually what I decided was I wanted to do something more radical um, in terms of change, so something sort of more vocational um, and helping people and. I guess there does feel a link because the emotional makeup and the psychology and, and, and how people behave and the sort of humanness of us is very much you know what's around when you're in, in HR in the many sort of roles that you might be. And so, yeah, I think it felt like a kind of a natural sort of transition for mm. me.
0: So, I mean, it, it does sound like that there is an overlap be- between the two professions. So I'd love it if you could explain a bit more about that. And then What the skills are from workplace conflict that you're
5: able to to use with couples? So I think, I mean, this is obvious. I know it sounds obvious, but I think it has to be mentioned anyway. But one of the key similarities is, is obviously people. For me, I just thought broadly there were three kind of areas. And one was about relationships and relationship work. Two is about learning and development. And then the third, sort of a mental and emotional well-being. So relationships and relationship work. I think you need to, and as an HR person, generally you would have an interest in understanding the relationship that is before you. And hopefully together trying to sort of seek, you know, a satisfactory outcome, whatever it is you might be dealing with. And it's worth noting that as in it is with romantic relationships, it isn't always about staying together together. (laughs) <laughs> you know, H yeah. R HR, sometimes it is about, you know, perhaps parting ways is, is best for sort of both parties. So understanding people and workplace relationships, I think, is an aspect um, that's really important um, in HR. And again, as we've romantic relationships, there's so much more beneath the obvious that's being played out um, in the interaction between your colleagues and staff and managers. So whether it be if you're dealing with disputes or negotiations and grievances or if you're building, you know, alliances... The emotional makeup, um, the past experience of all the people that are involved is in the mix, and you're never really just dealing with the here and now. Um, you are also dealing, you know, with the past. Of course, as an HR person, whilst you're unlikely to sort of delve too deeply into the sort of deep and personal depths, there is a necessity for empathy, being aware of the needs behind the concrete demands, and then the powerful feelings that have been aroused that awareness is really crucial actually for moving forward getting to some agreement and some and some resolution so there's some real parallels there around that sort of relationship yeah enabling and facilitating the second one which I think um, learning and development which I think is again really similar so HR I think is a profession that is absolutely steeped in developmental processes so I mean if you think about it I think nearly everything, actually, in HR involves uh, developing others in some way, you know, from induction, performance reviews, you know, the dreaded appraisals, job training, managing talent, leadership pipelines, succession planning, Mm. learning organisation strategies. And and it is quite, you know, a long list. You know, there is this focus on the growth of individuals, groups and whole organisation, and it is at the heart of almost everything. And counselling is very much a learning Experience. So, as a therapist, you are working with people to help them learn about themselves, about the relationship, about those that they are in the relationship with I mean it actually even requires you to learn about the other and it is through learning really that, that change and improvement and repair can happen so that's why I see there's just such a crossover. Third this would be an interesting one perhaps to raise so mental and emotional well-being and um, so I'm going to just sort of head this up by saying you know I am fully aware that over the years HR has fought to be heard and Hmm. its seat at the table and there was a period when it seemed that HR really needed to renounce its more pastoral side and this idea I think that HR can only be commercial or caring is this is what we refer to in counselling as splitting. So splitting is when we have difficulty conceiving the coexistence of what we perceive to be incompatible elements but I don't have this, you know, binary view really of HR. Um, in my experience, I think HR works best when it's both business-minded and compassionate. And so, HR really directly and indirectly, so indirectly through guiding its, you know, the managers of the organization. Like counselling is a profession, I think that supports people. Employees get ill, they yeah. die, they experience bereavement, they have mental health issues, they have. Tragedies that occur, relationship breaks up, and a real, you know, myriad of difficulties. That is the human experience, and HR has a critical role in the, you know, in the emotional, mental well-being of employees.
1: Increasingly, employers are seeing the value in occupational counselors and therapists in their organization as staff health and well-being are at the top of the agenda for many boardrooms. But what value could couples counselling and therapy bring to HR professionals who are often having to be the one to step into that counsellor role when occupational therapists and uh, counsellors might not be available?
5: There is some benefit from having um, some some training, but it would need to be the sort of appropriate training. Mm. HR professionals, you know, at the end of the day, they're not trained counsellors and what they will do is refer out because mm. that's the you know that's the safe that's the sort of the, the right thing to do in perhaps knowing where that line is whether there is even a safeguarding issue what the boundaries are in terms of the help that can be offered within the workplace you know and from that person and what really needs to perhaps be um, referred to a GP service or a counselling service if if that's something that the organisation has there, there may be some training in that area to sort of help with that but it is a fine line because it's is not to say that if you're in hr then you're naturally you know a counselor it wouldn't necessarily be right for the hr person or indeed the person is mm-hmm. on the other end of it you do need a trained person
1: thank you for joining us it was lovely to hear your experience and kind of how you've transitioned through your hr journey and now going forward in your career it was really great to hear from you thanks very much And now it's time for the man that makes the most terrifying workplace conundrums look harmless. It's Tim Pointer. So Tim, this month's question is: I joined my current team as a part-time HR administrator about four months ago, and I'm one of two HR professionals in the office. The other HR professional had a baby last year, and because of this, she's been able to work on a flexible schedule around her childcare responsibilities, which I think is great. She used to work full-time, but now works from home two days a week, leaving early on all the other days. The problem is that I am constantly being asked to stay full-time at the office to work on projects that the other HR professional can't do because of her schedule. I often get asked to work on projects because this person doesn't want to be there or says she can't be there because of her baby. Another example of this is we're working on a team-building program where we'll be staying in a hotel for the week-long program. Initially, we were both planning to be at the exercise so we would have someone on site at all times. But this other person now decided she will only stay on for one of the days and I will be there the entire time. I have no problem being there when I'm needed, but I was prepared to share a lot of the responsibilities with this other person am i wrong in thinking that because she's the full-time hr person that this is really her idea and she should have to be there i feel like i'm being discriminated against because i don't have a child and they assume i assume the company when they say they that my time is always free so i can pick up the extra slack i feel like this is a really kind of common question as more people head into a certain time in their life and then maybe you have another person who's not quite at that level where how do you divide the responsibilities equally between people who have outside of work commitments, like childcare responsibilities, or if they're a carer for an elderly relative or maybe a family member who's disabled, and then someone who doesn't have those responsibilities but still wants that work-life balance, which I think is really essential to anybody, no matter what.
3: First and foremost, it's about having some really basic, honest conversations, isn't it? Because the one person who is completely absent from that fulsome description. Is their boss?
1: Mm. Yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> so I'm sorry. Where's the manager in this? Because <laughs> the manager is responsible for the allocation of work and thinking this through. That is their key responsibility. They're they're mm. there to lead the team. They're there to make sure. I'm going to go back to the importance of fairness, which I think we mentioned in a previous podcast.
0: Yeah,
1: you
3: know the, the perception of unfairness here is palpable. That comes all the way through their description. And of course, you know, this person may not have a child, but exactly as you just said, they might have other responsibilities. And even if they don't, even if it's because they want to get to Taekwondo, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they have a life. So it's absolutely sitting down and having that, exactly what they've said here. This is how I'm feeling because they are becoming disengaged. Mm. They have chosen to take up a part-time role. So I'm slightly concerned of, what exactly are they being paid for at the moment? Mm -hmm. Because they're definitely working, they're telling us, more than their part-time hours. So again, that sense of, is that additional hours? How deep is this sense of unfairness? Mm -hmm. Is it just about salary? Is it about time? Is it about the projects they're working on? But they are feeling that they are being treated differently because they don't have a child in their care. And that's something that, as an employer, We the the employer has to take action on.
1: And I think one of the things that kind of uh, comes through with this, and I know for HR people, it can be quite different because HR is a sector where normally you have an allocated amount of hours. You may not work outside of hours or on the weekends as you do in the care sector or in healthcare or even retail. But when you have these moments where someone has to pull out at the last minute, I think like in this last example where you plan something and say, we're going to have both HR professionals on site, and then at the last minute, one person says, actually, I can't. How do you have that conversation of, I can pick up the slack this time, but there's going to be another time, because I think one of the things that they're bringing in is there's always another time where this person says, I have to go. And someone has to pick it up, and unfortunately, it seems to be this person. How do you have that conversation of, There's a give and a take. And it seems like I just keep giving when you just keep taking.
3: And a lot of people listening to the podcast will work in global organisations where they adjust their working hours to the different time zones around the world. They'll Mm. be coming in. Early so they can speak to colleagues in Asia, they'll be working late so they can work with colleagues in, in North America, or they'll be working in through-the-night operations within a superstore, for example, where you know, the doors never close and they're supporting their through-the-night team or their early's team or their late team. So, you know, So often it's about being really clear about this is our business operation. These are the times that we need to work because of the colleagues or because of the customers in terms of the, the way that we have success as an organisation mm. and being really clear as to what those times are. And that's from obviously the, the start of the recruitment process onwards or when the business needs change, being really clear as to what's changed and why it's changed and how talking through how we're going to respond to those needs. So you can have all, t- all types of working patterns, but you are looking for that sense of that The the word fairness goes through that stick of rock, right? Mm. So that we know that as a team, we're going to meet those needs. You know, there's lots of options here. I feel as though there is, you know, access to working from home is being opened up to her colleague, but not hmm. uh, but not to the individual that's written to us, for example, because hmm. it's uh, he or she doesn't mention it at, at any part. And I have a deep concern about their not being given the flexibility because of a difference in family situation. Yeah. So look, the start for this is to sit down with the manager, have a thorough conversation and really talk about the way that they can go Forward and share the uh, share the responsibilities because that sounds like doing some really interesting stuff, right?
0: Hmm.
3: So there's there's great work there. They're doing a team building program. They've got this offsite piece. There's lots to get engaged in. It's just making sure that they're feeling that they're learning but not being taken advantage of.
1: I don't know what you think about employee monitoring, but I always have that thought in the back of my head that the people are watching me and kind of judging my google searches at work what about you it's
0: very big brother isn't it but i think it's probably going to make good strides
1: and i think that couples counseling and therapy is really interesting from the hr perspective because hr is kind of seen as being that listener to the
0: employee and the employer being that couple there that's it for this edition of that hr podcast thanks to all of our guests ed houghton anka amanda hughes and of course tim pointer you can subscribe to the podcast on apple Podcasts. Spotify, Spotify, SoundCloud,
1: or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And keep up to date on all things HR and That HR Podcast on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We love to see your comments. My name's Lily Howlett. I'm Maggie Baska. The producer for this episode was Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio. And we'll see you next month. Bye. Bye Bye. 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 Bye.